episode number 59, Robert Sondergaard. Welcome back to the Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. And I'm, as usual, your host, Michael Cruz. And this time, I have an interview with the terrific Vancouver Lighting Production Designer, Robert Sondergaard. Robert is another in my continuing series of interviews taped in Vancouver in December of 2018, and he does not disappoint. We reminisce about the beginnings of Moving Lights during his time at the start of Christie Lights Vancouver and talk about his wonderful work on live events on the opening and closing ceremonies of the Vancouver Paralympic Games in 2010, among others, and land on his return to theater with his work in dance and musical theater. You can see examples of his work as we talk about it in the show notes at thetitleblock.com. Now, I hope that you are continuing to weather these ridiculous times as the theaters are shut down and we are in stasis, waiting to return to making art for a live audience. Please, if you can, consider giving to the Actors Fund of Canada at afchelps.org. As well, tomorrow I am really excited to announce the start of the first of the Tuttle Block live events on YouTube. Uh, please find the Tuttle Block podcast on Tuesday, April 14th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where a panel of lighting designers, including Louise Gounod, Kevin Fraser, Michael Walton, Kim Pertel, will take a deeper dive into the elements of lighting design. This week we're going to talk about the mysterious and ever-present fourth wall and how lighting designers think about it. Take a masterclass from Canada's Best and join us on Tuesday Live or catch up with a discussion after it has aired on YouTube at the Title Block Podcast. A special thanks to Connor Moore, who's helping to organize these talks and who I indeed interviewed in Vancouver as well. I'll be releasing that interview very soon. Once again, I will not be charging the wonderful supporters at Patreon.com while we all pause, but I thank you all for your past and future support. Now, here's my interview with designer Robert Sondergaard. Rob Sondergaard is a Vancouver-based lighting designer who works uh, in several different domains, including dance and theater, musicals, uh, as well as an extensive uh, career working for live events uh, on television. Uh, he joins me from his home here in Port Moody, Port Moody, yeah. um, British Columbia, uh, and uh, I welcome him to the title lock. Thank you. Thank you for, for joining me today or having me over to your house. I appreciate it. No worries. <laughs> so um, you had a bit of a non-traditional entrance into, um, into theater and into live events. Uh, tell me about how you found your way uh, into um, into lighting and and uh, how did you make the, that decision? Uh, it was very unfocused. Um, I all I knew is that I liked being in the entertainment industry. Uh, I grew up in Kamloops, and uh, our high school was attached to the Sagebrush Theater, which is where the Western Canada Theater Company uh, put on its shows. And so, in high school, we were uh, lucky enough to be able to use the stage for our high school productions. But then the the theater company would also actively be looking for volunteers to come in and help out on their shows. So uh, while I was still in high school, I would go in and help with the fit up or, you know, do a hang and focus or, um, 
you know, any of those kind of activities. And at the time they also had an apprenticeship program, which basically they were looking for people to come work for them for free for a year, but you would get a chance to do a bunch of work. And so I decided that was what I wanted to do. Um, I, my mom said, no, you've got to go to university. And so I did a year for her just to say that I tried, but then I went back and spent a year at the uh, Western Canada Theatre Company and really it wasn't about design. It was about working in the shop. So I helped build sets. I would uh, run lights on one show, run sound on the next, and basically got an introduction to every department uh, in the theatre. Um, while I was there, the ATD was a, a guy named Dave Rowan, a really good friend of mine now. He works for Cirque du Soleil. He had just finished working up in Banff and said, you know, if you really want to learn more and learn how to do it uh, at the next level, you should apply to Banff. And so that uh, that summer I applied, got in and went up there, uh, was part of the stagecraft program um, and met a ton of people that later on um, were great contacts and taught me a lot of stuff while I was there. Um Saw a job posting for Bally BC. They were looking for production assistant. Um, applied, got the job. And as it turned out, the, the lighting designer for Bally BC was a gentleman named Ken Alexander who did a lot of dance design back in the 80s and a uh, little bit in the 90s. But that was sort of, at that time, he was transitioning towards running a shop and he eventually opened up Christie Lights Vancouver. And um, I got a job there. I was one of the first employees here in Vancouver and spent my time learning everything about lighting at that point. So I was started off driving truck and sweeping shop floors, but uh, this was just the beginning of uh, moving lights becoming um, a thing that everybody was getting access to. They were being mass produced fast enough and cheap enough that you could have them anywhere. And so I was lucky enough to be one of the first people to learn how to uh, program them and was then sent out to work with all sorts of other designers who wanted to use moving lights, but the house technicians in whatever theater we were at didn't know how to use moving lights. We couldn't integrate them into those lighting boards. So I would come in as a completely separate system and set up um, my lighting board next to theirs and would build lighting cues and got a really great um, education doing that programming for uh, designers like Alan Brody or Gerald King or Guy Samard. Uh, and really that was my education as being their programmers mm-hmm. over a number of years. Um, I said non-traditional, but that's a very, that sounds like a very obvious, like a trajectory that many people have taken, like the, the, especially with, with uh, especially at that time where the, the, the only time you had exposure to these kind of technologies was working at places like mm-hmm. Christie or West Sun or, uh, or PRG. Well, that no, wasn't PRG at the time, but, uh, but West Sun. Um, and I remember, I remember Christie lights, uh, it was a little shop in Toronto in the late eighties, early nineties. And they, they had all this expansion and Vancouver was one of the first shops they opened, I yeah. think. In the yeah. The, we had actually, um, been on tour with Valley BC through Toronto and, uh, Ken had met Huntley Christie at the time and they got to talking. We, we, Ken was working for another lighting company in Vancouver called uh, creative lighting. And, uh, Ken was like, well, or I think Huntley approached him and said, you know, if you're interested in helping me expand out in Vancouver, why don't you open up the shop and we'll figure it out from there. So that was, you know, like you said, uh, the Christie Toronto shop was just little mm-hmm. and it was, you know, we're going to expand and, but, the, but they didn't have the money or the backing to just plop in a whole bunch of gear. They had to find people who could do it. And, and I think Huntley's done that as his model throughout now, but it's, it really was a great opportunity. It was just like this perfect timing to be there when, uh, this company that would come on to be a huge company yeah. was expanding and, and, 
luckily I got to work with all sorts of other designers that were outside the, the local theater scene as well, because we were supporting, you know, Hong Kong pop shows that would come over and I would, they'd be asking for all these very lights and I would have to program the moving lights we had on our lighting boards. And so I was taking direction from them and then we'd be getting big, you know, auto shows coming through. And so you'd be working with designers from that world and seeing what they needed. Cause it's, we're all doing lighting. We all use the same lights, but everybody needs them for a different reason. And so I, I really got a great education on, you know, what each light could do in each discipline and how to make the most of it for the whatever task you needed at that time. And, and what was been really useful is tricks or things that you see somebody do in a, in a rock concert directly apply to when you're doing a musical, but nobody really teaches you the, 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 the bridge between them. And so I've been lucky to, to see both sides, the program both sides, so that now when I design a musical, I've got this rock and roll experience in the back of my brain Obviously, you don't take everything, but a lot of your where do you put lights and fixture choices are, are influenced by those things that I saw and then had to program. Like you look at a lighting plot, you go, oh, there's moving lights all over. You don't until you start programming in them and see that the designer had this idea they, they're going to do a fan like this or the rainbow color will go through like that. It doesn't it doesn't become clear until you've had to program it. So it really was a great uh, education to see why those choices were made. Nobody ever sat down and explained it, but if you're paying attention, you can always see why something was chosen and why, you know, why you did it that way. Yeah. Uh, I remember that we knew nothing. I mean, I, I, moving lights were, uh, exciting. Um, and I came up, like I was, I did some events. I worked with the IA down in Kitchener, Ontario, uh, which is the Stratford local. And we did events in the auto show and things like that. And, uh, and, and big, large productions came through with moving lights. But um, nobody in theater really knew how to, what to do with them uh, when they first no. <laughs> started becoming available. Uh, what, what's, I wanted to cover, because I, I was a real, I was a big gearhead back then. I'm, I'm curious in what the technology was that you were first introduced to. It was like, we talked about IntelliBeams. What moving head fixtures did you guys have available? Uh, well, Christy Lights, uh, th- 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 there was a big change. So it, when I first started, most moving lights were coming from high end. They were the, the place to get your moving lights and they were all mirrors. So it was right. track spots and telebeams, um, cyber lights, techno beams. And it was as Martin, when Martin started coming on the scene, they, they, they've got a longer history than this, but when they really started to push into the, we're a pro fixture, yeah. they started coming around. They, they had mirror fixtures, the PAL and so on and so forth, but they, yeah. they were coming around with the Mac, uh, 600 and at the same time, around the same time, High End was coming out with the Studio Color. Mm-hmm. So they were both sort of comparable. You know, we, we did a number of shootouts with them. How's the color mixing? How's the head speed? So on and so forth. And um, I, I was lucky. I was part of the Christie Lights team that was evaluating them. And what was interesting is... Um, I think what pushed the decision to Christie Lights becoming a Martin house is they could buy more fixtures for the same amount of money. It was some some metric like you could have two studio colors versus three Mac 600s. Right. And even though we thought one was better than the other, Huntley's like, we're running a, a rental company. We want more moving lights. And... You know, I think at the end of the day, it's been a great choice for them. But th- there are those kind of metrics at the end of the day. You you can spend all day trying to evaluate something and give it a score and pick the best one. But sometimes you just want more. <laughs> and that that's always been uh, one of my choices when I'm making moving lights is I, I will quite often default to a, uh, a less technologically savvy light because I want more heads. Mm-hmm. And then as long as you understand what the limitations are, like you, you'll make a choice and go, I want 24 of this light, but I'm not going to have color mixing. Or I could have eight of this other light that's got great color mixing, but now I've only got eight 
positions. Those are the kind of choices I would learn to make um, working in a rental company, but seeing that process. um, And sometimes that's, that's an important choice, not just what is the best fixture, but what is the best way to spend your time or money uh, working? That's great. Uh, I, you said PAL. I, this is all the stuff that I've totally forgotten because I've been out of the business now for about t- 10 years. And the PAL was like a revelation because I had shutters. I still have 16 of them. Oh, my God. We're, we're actually in the process of turning them into whiskey cabinets. Yeah, that's about yeah. it. They're big enough because they're <laughs> giant things. Yeah. I remember we had uh, on, I did a, I was on the crew for Janet Jackson when it came to uh, Skydome in 89, 90-something. And they had... Um, t- uh, Oh my God, I've just forgotten the name. They were from France. They were like, I was like oh, a couch. Wow. It was a moving mirror fixture. Tell a. It'll come to us. I, I know the one you're talking about. It was giant. Yeah. It was like someone put a sofa, five, 16 sofas across the back behind the stage. And that was the only way to get that intensity yeah. that, that nowadays they pack into you know these small little heads. But yeah. back then it was massive fixtures with huge heat sinks and fans right. and and then that's always was the challenge too is you'd yeah. get these fixtures and you want the intensity on an opera and then yeah. it's like whoa it sounds like a, a right. jet's lining landing on the stage here yeah. <laughs> so yeah scrollers are bad enough when yeah. you get a bunch of those fans going upstairs yeah it's crazy um what was the control like because originally like high end was using like its own yeah we we stuff, we right? had um the shows i was sent out on because it was just either a cyberlight or just some intellibeams we were using what was called the chitlick controller which yeah. is basically just it looks like a something you'd see on star trek it was you know just these little yellow buttons and a little lcd screen and a joystick mm-hmm. and um the trick was was how you know you could do all sorts of great stuff with it but it was really sort of dos based yes. and that you had to know what was going on in there and store it into these buttons and how do you recall it and how do you make that um, look smooth and clean like you would want on a, on a theater show? And so, um, I you know I really had to <laughs> figure out how to do that in, in a in a crash course because none of the manuals were going to teach you how to do that. It was all about how to run it for a dance floor. Um, but yeah, they were they were terrible, and you had your own little memory card that right. you know I'm. I don't, I'm sure they still exist somewhere, but it, it was scary. You never knew if your show was really going to be there or not. It was like an EEPROM card or yeah, something, wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It was. Yeah, it was. It was scary. You were always worried you weren't going to have your show the next day when you came back. And then, um, very briefly, uh, High End came out with. Um, so, uh, we we're still using a lot of high-end product at this point. They came out with their Status Q, which was a lighting board specifically designed for those lights. So they had, you know, buttons that were already labeled for here's the the color mixing on this on the Cyberlight, and here's its gobos, and there'd be pictures of it. But it was only for that console, and it, and it would output DMX. But try and program a different moving light on it; it was not going to be. Uh, successful. Yeah. So there was a brief, a brief time there where I taught myself how to do all the moving lights on the ETC expression line of consoles. And this is back before they had, before people were really asking how to do it. So they now are at the end of that console's lifespan, they had started putting in pallets and focus positions and you could buy versions or external peripherals that had wheels. But back then it was still very much a, you know, you're punching in numbers like it was a, a dimmer. But I was I was doing um, shows, you know, up to 24 moving lights on one of those boards um, because it was, you know, you could put more cues into it and you can see what was going on and do some of the tracking and stuff like that. But we were still building our own personalities for them. Uh, like, because it was all a DOS editor, you would go in and you know create it this is what the pan channel is this is the tilt channel and then you'd 
load that into the the board and then at least you had you know some functionality there but back then it really was just you're looking at a screen of numbers there was no nothing graphical about the interface right. there so yeah. you're you're a better man than i doing that one expression but i i would just throw my arms up and go i just give me 12 more lead costs and I'll yeah. do it. well actually i did i did one show where um when i was at christy lights i got dispatched to do all sorts of crazy stuff so there's a art gallery in um seattle the henry art gallery yeah. And uh, they had uh, uh, James Trell. I don't know if you know him. He's a he's a artist, and one of the things he does is he he builds sky space pavilions. So okay. basically, he he makes a building that has a very tiny aperture, and you sit inside this building and look up at the sky and look at the sky through this aperture, and it kind of focuses your attention. And that's one of the main things he's known for. He's actually got a crater uh, somewhere in the states that's his biggest one. I think it's, yeah. Anyways, they had built this purpose built building for him, and they had installed some like thousands of LEDs around the outside of it to, to light the building. So they were, they were on mullion that um, shot back to the building. So you couldn't see the fixture, but it lit it. And that was just when uh, uh, WYSIWYG and ETC had sort of gotten to bed and created the emphasis, which was basically just a, a, a an expression line console that had infinite number of channels. So they sent me down there to program this show. They had sold it without con- consulting anybody. I had to go down and program it. And, um, so with all these thousands of lights, uh, James and I are sitting out there in the middle of the night and he goes, I, I want the color to wipe very slowly over five minutes around the outside of the building. And so on those boards, you could only do an eight part queue. Right. And so I had to make it wipe properly. I think I had 24 eight part queues uh, to, and, and had to build all, like look all those channels and punch them in in the right orders. Cause you couldn't grab things in groups and a line and array. You were, you'd, you'd have to go, okay, that channel, that channel, that channel, that channel. Now they're at this level to make it wipe around. And, and luckily he only wanted eight different looks or something like that, but it was hours and hours of programming, which nowadays on the grand MA, you could build it in two minutes. You would just, you know, once you'd had your board set up and patch, you just grab them array time boom, you're done. Um, but back then, yeah, I, I don't, I actually went there this summer. Um, I don't know if I, we didn't went during the day, so I don't know if they still have the same programming on the outside or not. That's fantastic. And, uh, and I'm now recalling because I worked at cast, uh, in from 98 to 2000 and well, off and on till 2005. Yeah. I was under Phil Sagan was the library director there when I was, uh, working under him. Uh, so I think that's maybe where I first heard about you. Maybe. Was yeah. That cast. Yeah. yeah. I, I still, uh, I still use WYSIWYG, uh, quite a bit in everything that I do. Um, I, um, I've transitioned to Vectorworks quite heavily now. I, I, I draft everything in 3d and it's way better for, uh, presentation and integrating with the rest of the design team, but really WYSIWYG, you can't beat it for the speed and accuracy with, with which it represents, um, lighting on, on the stage. And I'm always, I'm always amazed. You, you know, you build something in the, in the computer and you're looking at your screen and then you get to the theater and if you've hung the light in the right spot, it, it, it's, it's amazing what it does. And, um, just part of my process because I've always worked with WYSIWYG um, is I, most shows I do musicals anyways, um, I will pre-build the show at home. So I sit and, and rough in the lighting rig, rough in the set, and then I can pre-build everything. And what I've found is that having something in the board before I get to the theater, 
it's not right. The levels are wrong and all that, but at least that the lights are on and I know they're in the right spot. And I've kind of worked out, here's where my groups are. Here's some color palettes and I'll, I'll fix the color palette when I'm there, but I'd rather have a button that says, um, you know, light pink or, you know, sun yellow or whatever. And then you can fix it visually, but you've already decided that's where the palette is. And every cue that you want it to be light green is referencing the palette. And so you, you can get all that pre-work done before you get to the theater. That's interesting. Uh, Phil Sagan worked on a number of uh, live ant um, shows in Toronto. One of the, the ones I remember is Sunset Boulevard, and they were hand tracking all of the movers in the show because you never knew, right? Like oh. something you like the next week, something would break down. You have to replace with a different lamp. It had slightly different stepper motors or whatever it was. Thing, and all of a sudden, it was off by. So you had to re you had to rejig the group and. Um, was, were you doing a lot of that tracking back then or was that something? No, that... I, I, I never took part in the tracking. I was never, uh, like I've seen assistants do that yeah. for designers. Uh, I was really more, it, it was like this weird, um, I was, uh, I wasn't quite the lighting, uh, the, the lighting programmer, okay. but I wasn't. But I wasn't like, I wasn't just the lighting programmer, but I wasn't the designer. I was kind of working with both. And so I, I was, it's like I was sitting at the big person's table, but without the responsibility of, of the, being the designer. So, um, it was great. Like I, you know, I, I got to be part of what was being created, but was also not responsible for, for it at the end of the day. So as a, as a learning a place to learn, it was fantastic. Yeah. It actually speaks to the technology too, because the operator was such an important component in, uh, in letting the designer know what could happen, yeah. um, how it had to happen, what steps had to, he had to take to make it happen, um, and maybe offering suggestions about easier ways to do it or moving from point A to point B is well, not linear. Yeah, right? in, in the 90s, there was a lot of that. Like, um, because most of the working designers had started in a world where there was no moving lights. And then it, it, it was like this very slow progression where either there was a, a specific effect that some, you know, the, either the director or the show called for that the only way we can achieve it is to have a moving light or, you know, somebody had seen a show on Broadway and they wanted to have that to, to make it feel fresh and new and it's a new design. Um, but nobody knew what it was or what they were trying to accomplish. And so that was kind of my job as was the interpreter is um, the designer would turn to me and go, Hey, I need to do an effect. Like, this is what I'm thinking. This is what's happening on stage. What do you think? And I would go, well, we should do, we can do this. I can do a color chase or we can do a gobo thing or uh, a dimmer thing. And, and what was important was being able to do them quickly. So you could go, this is what the dimmer chase would look like. No, that's not right. Okay. Let's abandon that. If we did a color effect, oh, okay. Yeah. That's more like it, but not as fast. Okay. And just be able to offer up suggestions, but have to do it very quickly because um, time in the theater is the most precious commodity of all. And so I got really good at knowing what to suggest, but being able to program it really quickly uh, to, so we could see what it was and then either finesse it or abandon it and move on to something else. And then part of that process as well is I, uh, I think a lot of designers, especially in the nineties, but still they start putting moving lights on their show and they go, Oh, I, I've got every base covered. Like I, I've, I've got my washes hung. I know what those are. Every other thing will be that moving light. Well, you run out of moving lights pretty quickly and, and you can't always just go from one to the other. So it was kind of having, my job was also to have a, an eye on where we had been and where we were going. So, you know, if I, if, if I knew that we had used that moving light for a particular effect, you know, in act one, and I knew that 
something similar was going to happen in Act 2, but now all the moving lights were being used in the top wash. The, the sooner you can identify that and go, okay, we need to pull that light out. We should never use it for the top wash because you're going to need it for your effect later on. Or um, is there a different way? Can we can we hang, if it's just this one top wash, can we put in a conventional wash or do it, something different to keep those moving lights free? Because you run out of them very quickly. <laughs> yeah, it's very, that's very true. It's very, very true. All right. And then we uh, transition, uh, just to finish the technology kind of arc as well, we transitioned to things like the Hog and the Grand MA. Yeah. In the late '90s, I think. Um, how did that change the way you work? Like, how much were the board and software designers like um, making your job easier, or like? Yeah, I mean that that has really, really gotten better. Like that from from the '90s till now. Um, I think people understand it, it's it's a, it's such a multi layered um, problem. There's uh, the artistic side about, you know, you need the board to be able to do things and fade things. And, you know, so until you've worked through it, until a designer comes up against a problem and goes, okay, I want everything on stage to fade in a five count, but that one particular parameter has to happen in a two on the older versions of consoles, you'd have to work out weird workarounds to make that happen. Nowadays that's built in, but that's only because there's years and years and years of feedback and there's better graphical ways to show that and fancy align array buttons. But, um, that, that is just a constant that's constantly being changed. And so, you know, even today, um, I'm always, uh, when the new version of the Grand MA software comes out, you're like, Oh, now they have this, that's better. And, and, and I found with, when you get together two or more people who were programming the Grand MA, everybody knows something that somebody else doesn't. And it's some weird hold down this button and press that one. And it does this and, and it'll improve your life immensely. And, that that never used to happen. Like when like when we started talking about the expression, it was just like, how do you make this show happen? And um, now it's it, as you add these more this functionality, it's great that you can do more. But there's also more things for people to learn to become an expert. Um, and so it's it's just a never ending cycle. And now with the new Grand MA three coming out, um, you know, I, I, it's just going to be one more board. I thought I thought I was done. I thought I didn't have to learn anymore. But that's going to be the next one because you're, there's going to be something in there that's just going to be so amazing that's going to make make your life. Uh, so much easier or better that you're going to have to move on. And then there'll also come a point, because um, I felt this way when we switched from Grand MA1 to Grand MA2. Grand MA1 did everything I thought I needed at the time, but those boards break down and they don't build them anymore. And so I've had to just, and I think everybody just has to keep upping their their learning because unfortunately you're going to learn something, be comfortable with it, and then they're, they're going to make it obsolete because that's how things are made nowadays. So... Okay, and then just continue with your uh, your career kind of trajectory as well. Um, when did you start doing uh, live television, or or uh, it was all live television? Right? Was it ever like pre recorded? It was all. Uh, I mean, it's it. it's a mixture. There's there's yeah. some. Uh, it, it's it's a real mixed bag. Once again, I. Uh, was sent out to do a few shows um, just as is once again the programmer on those events, um, and then. Uh, got lucky enough to meet people. Um, and, and really I've always found that you are going to be given more opportunities to get yourself in trouble than you, than you should. Like people are always going to offer you to, to design a show that you really aren't qualified to do. And it's at that point, that fear of, I don't want to fail drives you to, um, learn how to do it or, um, figure out all the steps that you don't know. Uh, I, I can't remember. It was one of the first, um, 
I don't even remember how I got this opportunity, but I was asked to, to light a, a TV show called Snap, Snapshots with Jim Houston, who's a hockey uh, um, oh, yeah. commentator. Yeah. And uh, I'd never lit this was this was an interview show. He was interviewing famous hockey players. They were going to set up in a TV studio here in, in Vancouver. And uh, I was like, sure, okay, I can do it. I'd never done that before. Like it's it's lighting people, but it's it's all the the things that a normal TV designer would know. Like you, I'm going to put a light on a drop down arm, and I'm going to do this, and I I knew none of that. And so I had been lucky enough to um, work with the lighting director for uh, CBC. Uh, his name was Amir, and I can't remember his last name, but he was like the last last of the lighting designers who did all the shows in Vancouver in the 80s. I think he said there was a department of 17 designers who worked at CBC doing all of their different shows. And by the time we got to the late 90s, he was the last one. He was doing them all. And so I phoned him up and said, hey, I've been asked to do this show. Um, Would you mind just talking to me about it? And he said, absolutely. Come on in. So I went and sat in his office at CBC for an afternoon and showed him the, the, the floor plans. And he sort of walked me through what I should do. And um, yeah, we made it work. I mean, the nice thing about lighting is, um, TV, TV, um, less so than, than, um, theater, but there is no right or wrong. Like, you know, if, if people can see it, you and I might look at a, a the way a, a person's lit on TV and go, that's really bizarre, but somebody might like that. And, and there's no right or wrong answer. It's not like, uh, you know, audio where it has to be at a particular volume. Otherwise it's destroying things down the line. It's lighting is, I think it's, it's still, there's a lot of creativity involved. And so I was able to kind of fudge my way through it. And maybe I didn't do it the way that somebody else would, but it was acceptable to the producer and director on that show. And, and it, so once you, once you've done that a couple of times and got your confidence, then you can feel like you can go out and, and approach the next show and know something and, and make sure you take some, I took something from the last show, like, okay, I should have done that. Or this person suggested I use this thing or that thing. It's, it's really been that kind of process of get myself in trouble, <laughs> learn how to get out of trouble and then use those, um, skills on the next show. Yeah, so okay, that's great. So tell me about PRP again. Uh, we, um, this, cause they factor heavily in all of your, in a lot of your live event work. Right? Yeah, so. absolutely. So, uh, Patrick Robert is the, the creative director of PRP, uh, Patrick Robert's productions. Um, he was, or still is, the was the creative director for the PNE, which is Pacific National Exhibition, same as the CNE or similar to the CNE in Toronto. And uh, so, in the early '90s, uh, while I was still at Christie Lights, they were looking. For, he was he was looking to do more at the PNE than just book a band for the entertainment, or you know, we're going to bring in. They, they booked the Super Dogs, but you know, they, they wanted he wanted to create something unique, and he was heavily influenced by. Uh, the things he had seen going to Disneyland. So the, the the parades they would do through the site or the the big shows they would do at the end of the evening and that kind of stuff. So we started over over 10 years ramping up those types of shows. So we would do um, parades through the park that would need lighting or we would need uh, do, a, do a nighttime show that would, you know, how do we do something that's more interesting than the last one? So we'd, you know, drive a semi-trailer into the site with lights and dancers on it or we'd, you know, build lasers on the scissor lifts and have them going up and down during the show. And so... Over, well, I, st- I still, I'm still the lighting director for the PE, but starting from like the early mid 90s till now, we were constantly, every year, we would spend six months developing some new show. Um, and they ended up culminating in the 100th anniversary of the fair. So, where we built, um, yeah, I think they were 80 foot by 40 foot high inflatable screens that we had, um, uh, project, you know, we did projected scenery and, um, big truss structures to mount all the lights on it. So, really it started off quite small going to these bigger shows and, and 
I was just really lucky to be part of um, his creative team. And uh, he he really allowed me to be part of the process to build the show. So we would sit down early on and talk about, okay, what are some cool ideas we can do for next year? Okay. You know, let's, let's do a country theme show. Okay. What can we do? We're going to want some pickup trucks and we're going to have this or that. And, and, and then you, as you develop those ideas, I would go and draw them. So this, this is sort of where I branched off from just being a lighting designer as I became at the early days, I wasn't the production designer, but I was more the guy that would draw everything together. So I would go, okay, we're going to have this. We need a stage here and we need the, the scissor lifts are going to go over there and figure that out. How do they all work together? And we would send it back and then we, he'd go, okay, I need room for 10 dancers on that thing. Okay. That has to be bigger or now we can't afford that. That's, you know, always a thing you're going to run out of money. So then I would figure out how to chop things down. So basically in the early days I would work as the production designer, but more a production assistant. And to, to the point that the, the, the skeleton of the show was built, then I would transition to be the lighting designer and then figure out how to light these shows. And on those kind of shows, it's, I would say it's about 20% lighting performers and 80% being part of the show. And I, I really feel like that's, that's where my, um, specialty is, 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 uh, if you, if you need the lighting to be an element in the show, not just supporting, that's really where I'm good at. That's most of the shows I've most proud of and had the, I feel the most success over are the ones where lighting was an element. Um, whether it's dance or theater or these kind of spectacles or TV shows, um, I think that that's, that's where I'm the most excited from a lighting standpoint. There's there's lots of shows that don't require that, and I'm totally the wrong choice to work on those. Um, but I really do enjoy being the person that brings lighting in and makes it something. I, I want people to walk away and go, wow, the lighting was spectacular. Yeah. That that's I think that's important on a lot of shows. And uh, working with PRP, those were the shows we were building and, and still do to, the, to this day. Uh, he's the producer for the Grey Cup halftime shows. I'm, I'm the production designer for all those. Um, our first, the first really big one we did together was the Paralympic opening closing ceremonies. And that was another one of those moments where I, I was completely unqualified to work on something that big and spent a lot of time worrying about it and, and had to do more homework than I've ever had to do before to make sure that we were ready to do that. Uh, but he had, uh, the trust in me to do that. And, um, I think, I think everybody has those moments. That's, that's something anytime I talk to, you know, young people, it's everybody has that show where they're completely unqualified and they're, they're not ready for it. It's how you deal with that and pushing through that. That's where you, people go, yeah, that's the person we want for the next one. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Okay, let's get a bit specific then. Let's talk about the Paralympic opening and closing. Um, what kind of problems uh, or are you solving as the letting the production designer and the letting director for that kind of? Well, so that that one specifically, um, Vancouver was the, the whole Olympics were very conscious on staying on budget. So there was none of the um, you know just draw something amazing and we'll build it. Like that was not that was not going to happen, and it didn't happen anywhere. Whether it was building venues or uh, any of the ceremonies, anything like that. So we basically had to start with what the uh, Olympic opening ceremonies and closing ceremonies had. So <laughs> we, we spent a lot of time trying to pry out of them what they had because they were so concerned this is, uh, about what they were doing and it was a secret. They didn't want it to get out into the, to the general public and it didn't matter how many NDAs we signed. It, there was still like, you know, we can't quite share that with you yet. Or, you know, there'd be a gray box over something and you couldn't know what that was. So it was a it was a lot of time before we had all the kind of answers to as a, what it was, and then 
what we had to do, there was sort of twofold. The first was, is we had to make our show look unique. Even, even though we were keeping huge portions of their set, uh, it couldn't look like the same show, um, you know, was happening two weeks later. So, you know, we had to make modifications for the, the Paralympic athletes. So, you know, adding ramps and making sure they could come into the stadium and get to the right spots. Um, and then modifying some of the places in the, in the stage to have the different elements we came up with. So that, that was a longer process of like, what are the elements of the show going to be? And then how do we fit them into the space we already have? While we were doing all that, we were very conscious that we couldn't afford to keep all of the rental equipment that they had in the venue. So once we had the, the lighting plot um, from Bob Dickinson, um, I don't remember the numbers exactly, but it, it's something like they had a thousand moving lights to light the stadium. Because with the height and trim and everything, it, conventionals weren't relevant. You had to have a moving light. Uh, but we could only afford to keep, keep half. So I had to go through and figure out, you know, what 500 moving lights are we going to keep? And, you know, it sounds like a crazy number of moving lights, but when it takes a hundred to do, uh, get you the right amount of level on, on the field of play in white for the athlete parade and you need to light the audience. So that's another 200. And then you need to have the, the flag still all lit and all that. All of a sudden you're like, wow, I've only got 50 left and you need to have a little bit of movement in the atmosphere, you know, the ballyhoo going on because that's what's happening. So it's really figuring out what do we need and how, like uh, where, which of the many positions do we need to keep them in? Right. That's interesting to me. I, I, like I had always assumed that you were using stadium lighting as well as the sort of the live event or the TV lighting. You're all, the whole thing is lit with the movers yeah. entirely. And this yeah. is because it, of control. And it, it, it's, it's because of control. And, um, one of the one of the major issues with uh, TV is its color temperature, and so you don't want to be hampered by what sports lighting is, and and that that can be a really fickle um, beast to deal with. Um, we, you know, this this is a challenge we deal with in all the um, the halftime shows we do. Is you're coming from a, a stadium that's lit with sports lights, and quite often we want to turn them off to make it look more theatrical. Well, you, you can't change 40 camera settings and, and, and be sure that they're going to, you know, they do, they can do scene stores and all that kind of stuff, but we try to make it as easy as possible for the truck because those guys, you know, they've got 40 cameras to deal with. So if we can make sure the color temperature is the same and that we haven't gone crazy on the lighting levels compared to what they were in the stadium, um, that makes our life easier. So with those types of shows, you want to make sure that you're not dealing with that. You want to have your own lights and have complete control over them. And um, I did, the first Grey Cup I did was in 2005, so five years before the Olympics. The sports lights they had were so old that it took, um, I think it's like 20 minutes for them to come up to temperature. And they go through these horrible cycles of green and popping on and off. And because that was so long, for, for that one, those are the Black Eyed Peas, um, we actually had to turn the lights on at the beginning of their last song. So if you if you can still find the YouTube video, which is I'm embarrassed of, um, the 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 last song you can see the sports lights slowly coming on, and it's all weird and green in the audience. And so you just really you try to keep them out of the the whole mix as much as possible. And, and as you said, you can't you can't cue them off and on. That's starting to change. There's lots of stadiums now that have LED fixtures that are that are doing the lighting. Um, that's just sort of in the infancy. And what we don't have yet is uh, proper DMX control of them. They're all wired into their own world, so it's still way easier just to leave them off and and relight everything on your own. Yeah. You would think a stadium designer now who's doing sports lighting would 
be conscious of the fact that there's going to be live events throughout all of these like <laughs> event like you're, no one does a show now or does a does a sporting event without an opening number you know, or uh, you know well i i found i found that no matter what new building is being built it doesn't matter if it's a sporting stadium or a convention center or a theater i, I don't think what uh, the people putting on shows in there are the last people that anybody thinks about no consultant is going hey i'm going to build this cool thing that is going to make the lighting designer or the set designer's life easy mm-hmm. they're they're more concerned about um what does the lobby look like yeah. because that the people who are putting the money in uh that's they want to walk in and go wow this is amazing they don't care that only three fly lines got put into a theater right. but then for the rest of that theater's lifespan it's 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 a problem and um I see this over and over in new theater or retrofits of theaters that the the things that are going to make that a great space to work in in the future don't get thought of. Um, and it's not, it's not just theater. Like the convention center, the, the one here in town, they, we did the opening ceremonies for it um, just before the Olympics. The house light system in there, it, it works if you want to have all the lights on. It's There's lots of light for all the trade show booths. But everything's on one channel if you want to dim it off and on. So when you want to just have the lights over the, the video screen off, you can't do that. You, you know, we have to send somebody up to turn the breakers off. And, um, we also see a lot of really bad house lights put in that are, you know, they're, they're all energy efficient. We, you know, we, we need to be conscious of that. But then when you dim them, even, even if they have an interface so you can plug in the lighting board, they, uh, they flicker off and on at, they basically go from zero to 50%. And then there's a slow difference from 50 to hundred. So really that's always a problem in every, every building that's being built or anything that's being retrofit. And I, and I don't know how to change that metric because really that's the, the people who pay the money don't appreciate the, what the building will be used for after its lifespan. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I totally get that. Uh, interesting. Okay. So, um, I, I kind of question about these, the halftime shows, cause you have a lot of other artists, like it's not just, uh, uh, like PRP doing its own thing. You're inviting artists in to, yep. to, to present their work. Uh, and with, for example, in 2012, you had Justin Bieber, uh, Carly Rae Jepsen, uh, uh, Marianne Trench, and Gordon Lightfoot. Like, there's a whole bunch of different artists there, and they bring their own yeah, and that's and it, well, exactly, and and that's uh, um, that's actually a really challenging one sometimes. So, um, in some years, uh, like the year the year we had Nickelback, um, for example, they all they cared about was was there enough pyro. So they were very specific. They wanted lots of flame. They wanted lots of pyro. We had zero direction about anything else. Nobody cared about what the lighting looked like. I mean, if it looked terrible, I'm sure somebody would have come and said something, but we had carte blanche to, to light that show. Um, we've had other years, um, like when we did the Imagine Dragons, their production designer had, um, basically gave us a, a, a Pinterest page of this is the looks I'm looking for, um, per song. So this song is all about, it, it was mainly driven towards video content, but then there was lots of notes from her about, um, the lighting, I'd, I'd like to do this. And on this beat of the music, I want this thing to happen. And she couldn't fly in until we did the dress rehearsal. So, so we, we, we t- basically took, took all of her notes, built all of her content. She came in, we showed her some stuff, did the dress rehearsal, stayed for an hour, did some notes. It was done. Um, and then we've gone to the completely the opposite side of things where, um, 
the the lightning designer will come and do their show. Mm-hmm. So that was the, the last few years have been like that. Um, but like we had um, uh, one one Republic uh, lighting designer named AJ Penn. He he's a uh, he used to work for Christie Lights. I've I've known him forever. Yeah, I worked with AJ back in the day. Yeah, he, yeah. he's a great guy. And so um, one of the challenges we were actually had. I don't know um, how many people work on the C and E grounds, but the IATSE out there has some very stringent rules about um, they need to operate the lighting board. And unfortunately, uh, the, 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 you can't just bring in any operator to create a show like that. You can't, it's not, you couldn't even talk through what you had to do with the amount of time we had. And because we were lucky that AJ was coming off of a tour and had the show file. And so basically we modified our setup to mimic what he had on the road with some, you know, we had to do specific things in that venue for him, but then he could come in, load his show file, which was fine within the IATSE uh, agreement. And you know, he, he spent an evening adjusting positions, adjusting some timing, but then boom, we could, he could do his show. So we, in, in that world, my job becomes more of a, um, uh, it's like a facilitator. I'm, 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 I'm make, I have to make a bunch of creative choices about where things go and fit within the budget, but then I have to take the outside designer, uh, all of their input and go, how are we going to fit this into what we're doing? And do we have to make some fixture changes? Do we need to, you know, add a, add a position? Oh, you, you like to have these lights built into the set. Um, it, it becomes a collaboration and it's, um, you really do have to at some point just check your ego at the door and go, we're here to put on the best show we can and acknowledge that the the designer coming in with that artist knows their show. We, well, whenever we do that, we, uh, my, my business partner, Jason McKinnon, uh, he stays on as the lighting director. So any white light hitting a, a performer he's in charge of. So he call, calls follow spots or footlights or anything like that. It sets all those levels to deal with camera. But then we, we, make sure that we, you know, we've developed a trust with the incoming designer that their show is not, we're not blowing out levels. You know, that, you know, that used to be the old way people would, you know, light shows. I think a lot of designers now are thinking about television ahead of time, but it used to be that, you know, you'd see looks where every moving light was on the lead singer in open white looks spectacular in arena on television. That's just terrible. It's just white gate and, and you can't do that. And so we're always less and less, but I think we're always trying to just, mo- um, monitor that on behalf of the TV team so that whatever they're coming in, we let them do what they need to do, but then we're bringing it back. So it looks good on TV. That becomes our role at that point. Right. Uh, and then uh, just a final kind of like process question as well. The, um, when you're building looks, <clears throat> uh, like in something with 40 camera positions, how do you, what's your point of view? Like, do you, do you have the crew there? No, it's, like, um, sp- in a perfect world, yes. Like I, I've uh, I've worked um, as a as a programmer for other designers, like Alex Nadon, who does a ton of most most of the television lighting uh, in Toronto now. He does that, like uh, the the Junos and the Walk of Fame and all these cooking shows, and he's, he does an amazing job. Um, and so when you work on a show like that, you do have rehearsal time with every act. I mean, we're always limited. Like I think I said before, uh, in America, they seem to have like, I've heard that the, the Grammys, they have a month in the venue. Uh, the Junos will get a week, you know, the, the Super Bowl, they get two weeks, we get a week, you know? And so we're, we're always working with less, um, but on, on a lot of those shows, they do get a lot more rehearsal time. So you can, you can, you have to map it out ahead of time. So you have to light the show that 
you want to light so it looks good for the people that are in the space. But then you, you there's also going to be some very specific looks that are going to be about one camera or two camera. You know, you might go, okay, I want to do this look where the, the, the lights are going to just, you know, have the person in silhouette and it only looks good from the very front camera. But every other camera, if you, if you, t- if you took that shot, it would, it would, wouldn't look good at all. So those kind of moments, um, you have to plan them out ahead of time. You have to really know what it is you're going through and, and listen to the music and talk through the show. And, and then it becomes a, um, uh, a relationship with the director of the show because directors are, are, it's the same title, but it's different in TV. Like they're, they're, they're dealing with the whole show live as it's coming at them. And so you need to find a, a director that's going to, you can have a conversation with them ahead of time and go, Hey, when the lead singer standing here for this part of the song, only use this camera. And, and that becomes a really, um, it's like any relationship, but that's one of the really important ones is finding the directors that will understand that. And then take that cut at the right time. And you know, it's live. And and the the difference is in in theater is that, Oh, we, you know, we blew this one show. We'll do the next one. Or there's more time to rehearse it in television. There's one moment generally that that's going to happen. And so you have to get really good about having all of those conversations ahead of time and having it done right. And so what we have to do to, to make sure our parts, right. Is while we're programming, uh, we always have a camera, set up and a monitor like we're, we're quite often we don't even look at the stage after a while once you've built your positions and all that kind of stuff everything else is about the camera what intensity is the light at what does the color look like because what what you're seeing uh, to your live and naked eye it doesn't matter it's what the the camera sees and so you got to make sure it's not too blue or you know then there's the range of blues is so limited or you know different especially blues they have a very small window that they actually register in so if you're trying to have different looks of blue you got to really just look at the camera. You can't look at the stage anymore. And then same thing with positions. Like there's stuff that looks really good where you've got lights layered up, you know, through 10 or 10 or 11 different layers in the stadium, unless they take a wide shot, none of that shows up. So it's, you kind of have to do both at the same time. You have to give them a wide to go to, to show the scale. Like you you don't want to do a halftime show where you only do close-ups because you can may as well be in the stadium, the studio. So you have to give them something big to shoot, but then you also have to make sure that there's something interesting happening when they do a close-up. They can't just be black behind them or a video screen. So it's kind of thinking in two levels at that time, but it's once again, it's all about just looking at the screen and knowing what may or may not be shot. And then it's, you know, you can't get the camera in the right position, especially on the halftime where we're repositioning all these cameras. You don't know that they're going to end up in the same spot that you rehearsed it at. So you have to make sure that it's lit kind of generally for everything. Yeah, I had, uh, so I I think everyone's very impressed with that changeover that happens uh, at the beginning and at the end, certainly to clear it out for the game. Um, How much time, like how much is that rehearsed? I imagine you guys go through step by step, like this guy brings in the... Yeah, there's there's mapping all that out ahead of time. Um, So, you know, we we have to build a plan on how we're, um, how we're going to get everything onto the field. And that goes right back to where does it all park? Um, For example, this last year we were in... um, Edmonton. Well, there's nowhere to park anything. There's no parking spaces close enough. So that in that case, everything has just stayed in the stadium. But uh, but in other years, we have to figure out how much space do we have to store everything. Okay, great. We 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 fit. Now, how do we park it in a way that it can drive onto the field in the right order? And then how many people? Because quite often you need people to push these pieces on. You can't, you can't drag them. You can't drive big trucks onto the field. So then, how many volunteers do you need to do it? So there's a, there's a very long process that, you know, we kind of 
do intrinsically now when, when we're designing stuff. We know how many people we kind of have and how many people uh, this size of set piece is going to need to push and so on and so forth. So you figure that out. And then, uh, we, like I said, we only have about a week uh, to do those shows. So the first couple of days are just building things. Yeah. We'll do uh, a dry rehearsal uh, on the field. And that's <laughs> our other big challenge is uh, we're competing for field time mm-hmm. because the, the players need the field and they need to paint stuff on the field and you can't drive on wet paint. So we're always fighting for field time. So we, we spend about an evening just pushing things off and on, making sure everything works. Uh, and then uh, we'll do generally a rehearsal on the Friday night with plugging everything in and turning it on. That becomes our big programming night. We leave everything out and turned on and we work around the clock. And then Saturday night we do a couple of runs with the, the artist as a dress rehearsal and then it's the show. So it's, it, it, like I said, a lot of it is just trial and error. We know what things work, um, but it does take a lot of time on the field to just plug it all together. And then, and then we also get hampered by the weather too. And when we were in Ottawa and we had, um, Shania Twain, that was the year we had the big snowstorm. And, uh, when we're lining things up on the field, it's all about using the, the marks on the field. So the, the, the 50, the 40, all those, you have to use those marks to line stuff up, but then you're also driving down the numbers or you're driving down the hash lines. And when there was all that snow, they couldn't see it. So they just started going. And I think we were with in 10 feet of our umbilical not reaching oh, no. to plug in. Um, it was like, it was a moment I wasn't on the field. I didn't know about this until afterwards, but that was like a, a very, <laughs> very close moment to having no lights or video, uh, for the show. So it's, yeah, it's, it must be a hell of a umbilical as well. Like it must be a giant cable bundle. Yeah. I mean, well, nowadays it, like, um, when we had more conventional, we we were putting dimmers and stuff on there. So you were running, you know, four odd out to oh, these, yeah. um, trucks. Uh, nowadays we try to break it down into something manageable. So it's a bunch of smaller, either Soka's out to certain places, or, uh, we'll take a number two feeder kit and, and adapt it to a hundred amp Hubble plug. So it's just like one regular connection to make. Um, but more and more now that there's more video on field or we're, we're, we're using, um, Septrons a lot. Um, it, it's Septron is a, is a, an led fixture. It's a meter long, um, that you can drive either with video or you can drive with lighting. And so when it's a, when it's a lighting fixture, um, it's like looking at a fluorescent tube. It's not so much about the light coming out of it, but it's a, it's, you're sculpturally designing the set. And so they will have, uh, it's either video or if it's lighting, it's divided into eight different segments. So you have thousands and thousands of channels all of a sudden, because you've got, you know, a few hundred of these fixtures and each one of them takes a hundred channels. Your universe count goes way up. So we're running ethernet cable out there and we're putting, um, uh, all sorts of, you know, things that are converting it into either DMX or whatever protocol we need. So that's the bigger thing. It's, it's not the big wads of cable anymore. It's delicate, uh, fiber lines and stuff like that, that you don't want pinched and making sure you've got spares of all that. And, uh, nobody's driving over them. <laughs> it's, it's a remarkable undertaking. Like it, I don't think that people understand how much, I mean, and you, I mean, you talk about trial and error, but like, you have to keep a lot of, this is a lot of planning. Well, and, like and it's, it's not, and it's the team. It, yeah. it really, the, the, the team of people we bring is as, as similar every year as possible. So, um, uh, my production electrician, uh, Jason Bolger, he's done, oh, yeah. yeah, he, he's from Toronto and he, he worked at Christie lights for a ton of years and did all sorts of big shows out there. And so it, it's just that, that learning of, you know, these are the things you need to do. Here's, here's where the fail points are. We need to have a spare here. Um, this is where we need redundancy. This is, this is how we're going to, you know, lay out our power and distribute it. So it's not, if one thing fails, we don't lose everything. And, and, uh, 
like I couldn't do it by myself. I like I I know I know how far to take it, and I know what questions I'm going to have to answer, and then. Uh, I pass it on to somebody else and they figure out their piece of it. And then they, you know, they don't know all the answers beyond that. So then they're, you know, the next thing they're going to go is I need more people. And so we've got people to, um, bring on IATSE crew or bring on more volunteers to push or whatever it is. So it really is having a, a group of people who have been through it a number of times, makes a lot of those conversations, uh, shorthand, you know, just, you don't have to talk about it or think about it anymore. It, and that's, that's the nice, that's a comforting thing. It's also a little bit worrying because the longer you do it, the more you kind of just assume that everything's taken care of and you're not going through it in the same level of detail. And I, and I, you know, I just have to trust that the people I'm working with are all working at it on the same level of intensity that I am. Okay. Um, so tell me about your reentrance into theater in the uh, in the early 2000s. Yeah, I, I had just left uh, Christy Lights uh, in about 2002, and I, I just finally felt like uh, you know I could put a shingle out and go. I'm gonna, just going to do design, um, and it had, uh, I sort of bridged that a bit by being lighting director for Ballet BC. Uh, for a couple of years, but mainly I was doing uh, corporate work and um, a lot of the clients I'd had at Christie Lights, I was just servicing them. Um, and I don't remember, I think it was 2004, maybe something like that. Um, a friend of mine I had met in Banff the last summer I was up there named Richard Berg. Uh, he is the producer and director for a company called, um, uh, it was Uncle Randy Productions at the time, it's URP now. Uh, and uh, they had already done a number of seasons already, but uh, he, he approached me and said, hey, uh, I'm doing a production of uh, Tapestry. Uh, musical um love to have you come and light it for us and i hadn't done anything like like that um theatrically before and i sort of you know was a little bit hesitant and he goes no no no. like i i pretty much know what i want i just need somebody who can come in and program and i'd love to give you you know i'd love to love to work with you you know um he i think he had seen some of my corporate stuff or whatever but knew that i we had a good working relationship and i think that's what was more important than anything else so um Came on board. Uh, he, I think he and I probably collaborated more than anything else on that first plot about you know what we needed, what we wanted to do, uh, and I really enjoyed it. Like the the, the process of taking everything I had learned about doing. Um, music or theater or, uh, or sorry, music and corporate and that kind of um, uh, lighting that had uh, was an element to the show. It wasn't just you know lighting somebody for making them see, be, uh, be visible. Uh, but it was an element you have, you're augmenting what was going on on stage. I really enjoyed that and really, really got bitten by that. And, um, it, it, over the next few years, I did a, a number of shows with him. And, um, I think the next year we did Tommy and that was one where it was like, really all of a sudden now we're, you know, now we're in the world of rock and roll and theater. And I really, for me, that's, that's the most exciting, um, blend of 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 theater and all the entertainment i think you're getting the the story uh, depending on the show and you're getting the uh the, the music and you're getting choreography and you're getting a spectacle and finding a way for all those things to work when when they all work together it's really magical that's that's where i'm happiest and uh we went through a year a number of years of doing some of those kind of uh rock musicals like jesus christ superstar and uh cabaret and uh, basically at that point I was totally bitten, uh, by the bug of doing theater. Um, but, I, but I wasn't out there searching for it either. I just, he was bringing me in and I was doing it. And, um, then luckily, you know, people would come and see those shows and I got an opportunity to do a few shows at uh, Royal City Musical. Um, I had worked once in, uh, once again as a technician loading in those shows, but now here I was, you know, doing those 
those musicals. And I can still remember uh, my wife, she's a, a stage manager, or she was a stage manager, went into teaching, and now she's sort of getting back into it. And I would always be going to her going, okay, um, is this what I should be doing? Like, what, what kind of paperwork should I bring for the stage manager? Because I, I really, uh, I had missed all of that training about what is kind of expected and what is the the way to, you know, present your plans. And um, I remember, I, like, I was still... Um, at that time doing paperwork in Excel spreadsheets and, uh, the head electrician at the Queen Elizabeth theater, um, Paul Newmar, uh, he, he gave me shit one day. He goes, you can't show up and do a professional show with this is your paperwork. There's a program. It's called light, right? Go and buy it. I was like, okay. So I went off and, and bought it. And, and so basically I learned those things just because I had to, um, but it was, yeah, it was Richard who got me in the, the my sort of first chance to do it and, and was basically bit and enjoy that now. That's awesome. And another case of this kind of like pushing the envelope a little bit and putting you in a comfortable position to sort of expand your, you know, repertoire and your, your ability, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I love that. I think that that's a, a good lesson, I think, for people because we tend to sort of stay in our lane and, and uh, when something becomes comfortable, um, it becomes easier. Yeah. And, and I, I always found when, when I start feeling comfortable, that's probably a time to go. Like it's, it, it's not that I'm, I don't enjoy it, but it's, I think that's when you start missing things or you're not, you're not putting in the work you used to and putting in the work, um, whatever it is, is, is what makes it, makes your work stand out. So your, your, your attention to detail or you're asking questions, because if you start just assuming that you already know everything, you're going to miss that one bit of information. And, you know, it might not be something major, but you, you could also miss a whole, uh, the whole concept of, of the piece and go down the wrong path. And, and, you know, in a world where you only have a few days in the theater to create a show, you don't always have time to turn the ship and go the other way. So, um, I, I think that's why I had left Christie lights is I had got to the point I'd been there, um, almost nine years, I think. And it was just, okay. I knew what was coming you know, okay. In September, this show's going to happen. And then October. And, and I, I knew that I, I was going to get bored and need to move on. And, and it really was scary. Like going from a full-time job to basically being a self-employed again, um, was a big step and, but it's a good one. And I think you're, you're right that making yourself be scared once in a while, pushing yourself to do something you haven't done. It, it really is useful. And I, and what I've found too is that because I do it in a number of different genres, so I'll go from, you know, doing a, a musical theater piece to doing something for television to doing, you know, some other big music festival is that although they're not the same, that you do steal things from one, your, your knowledge of how you would light a TV show, you're going to find a, a show that that's going to play out on uh, in the theater world. Um, one of the, I think it was the first piece I did for the arts club, um, it was for Stan Douglas, uh, Helen Lawrence. Um, Alan Brody was doing it, and then he had to, because of his schedule, because that, that I think that one dragged on a while, he ended up backing out. And he recommended me because he knew that not only did I understand theater, but I also had a, a really good understanding of, of television. And that show was all about projection and cameras and doing it against blue screen. And it was kind of working in both worlds. And I was just, I had the the right background to, to be in that place at that time. And I, and I've, that's happened to me so many times in my career. I, I, you know, I can't think count how many times where you're standing there talking to somebody and you, you know, you, you either go, Oh, if I was doing a dance show, I'd light it like this. And they wouldn't have considered that, you know, like on a corporate, if you start suggesting you want to put some shins down to, to, to light a performance, 
nobody ever does that, but boy, does it look good. And you know, the dance world knows that they do that all the time. But when you try and set it up in a ballroom, people are usually quite surprised and, and blown away when they see that. And so it's, it, it really is good to, to be uncomfortable and then come back and use those experiences, uh, elsewhere. Uh, terrific. Uh, and then just going through uh, just a few more of the productions, uh, in the last, uh, what, 10 years now, um, uh, rock of ages. That's again, another yeah, big, that, rock and that roll was a good show, one. Right? Yeah. That was, uh, uh, for the arts club. And, um, th- that was one of those ones I had, I had always wanted to do. And I remember when they announced their season, I sent an email right away to Stefan, their production manager and said, Hey, I'd, I'd love to do that. And he goes, Oh, we've already got that slot filled. And, um, sort of hung my head and was sad. And then a few months later, um, I guess it, it, whoever they had uh, had wasn't available. And so they brought me on and it was, that was one that I was like, I was so ready for it. I, I think I started working on it um, like six months before the, we were even in production for it. And uh, what I've, what I've always found with musicals is that I approach lighting them like I'm lighting the the music first. So I there's a ton of work I can do to to break down a show, especially something like Rock of Ages where it's almost all singing, there's very little dialogue. So it's it, it is the songs. So what I'll do is I'll go through and break every song down on where I would do lighting changes. And what I've found is that's where the choreographer is going to do some big change or the director is going to have somebody move and want to be somewhere different. And so uh, the, the number of cues isn't really going to change. If you've, if you've mapped out the show with all the kind of musical breaks, you're already going to hit where the, 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 the look will change because of where the choreographer is or the actors, but you already know there's going to be a cue there. And so I find a lot of that work I can do ahead of time. And what I try to do, because I generally build too many cues, <laughs> is I'll, I'll, I'll do all that work and then I share it with the, the stage manager while they're in rehearsal. So they have an opportunity to while they're running cues, either put them in their book um, and and sort of get us understanding of, okay, this is where the cues are going to be and what am I looking for? And then when we have meetings and, you know, partway through the rehearsal process, we can have much more specific conversations, not like there's going to be some cues during the dance break. It's, I, you know, I can go in and she's going to go, hey, when they do that lift, it says exactly, we'll do the cue there. But we've already identified that there's going to be a cue in that dance break or in this core, can we change from verse to chorus? We're just, we're refining where that cue point is. Is it a, is it a musical thing? Is it a line thing? Is it a acting thing? But I try and make sure that that's all done ahead of time. And that was one, I think rock of ages was one where I kind of really figured out that process for myself. Um, because I wanted to have it all laid out before we got into rehearsals from a music standpoint. And because I did so much of the pre-programming, uh, at home, I built it all with uh, MA on PC and, uh, WYSIWYG. I needed to have that stuff figured out ahead of time. So, uh, it also, uh, uh, strikes me that your, uh, your work on dance would inform all the bits. Cause sometimes, um, when you get somebody who's done like corporate work or rock and roll, it, it, uh, there's a different, like, uh, I guess with rock and roll there's, you're, I mean, sometimes you've got, um, dancers and stuff on stage, but a lot of times it's static. It's a static stage look, right? Yeah. You got the drum riser and you got the keyboard one and keyboard two. And then maybe there's a, uh, you know, a string something down here and then you've got a singer that runs around. Uh, so it's not quite the same kind of stage structure as it is with a musical where you've got lots of people moving and sets coming in and out and things like that. But your experience with dance 
uh, would and certainly inform all that stuff. Well, and, and that's uh, yeah, like a, the, so the music side and the dance side. I think is when you put those two together, that's where you're getting uh, musical theater, and that's what's so exciting. So the, the 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 music side of things, like you said, the 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 setup generally, like the, the really big shows, not so much, but generally what you're talking about is five people on stage and fixed positions. So the lighting designer is all about making the show look spectacular as big as possible. So you're, you know, the, the lights almost never are pointing at the stage. They're, they're making pictures in the air, fans and color chases and your lighting. If you have a backdrop or if you're in a venue like the Orpheum and it looks great, you're lighting that. Uh, but it's not about the people on stage. In dance, it's the exact opposite. It's about the people on stage. Um, and there's usually nothing else. Like there's, very, you know, there's very few shows that have big sets in the, in the uh, modern dance. It's dance with black floor, black walls. Um, so you're, you're trying to make them look as interesting as possible. Uh, and because that's what the show is all about dance. But at the same time, you're, um, it's not like a, a theater piece where you're trying to necessarily recreate a, a sp- specific environment. You're not saying we're inside, we're outside, it's day, it's night. You're you're literally just trying to light the dancer, but in a way that looks interesting. And so I think when you take those two uh, experiences and put them together, that's where musical theater is, is that you need the people on stage to look interesting and you then have to add usually a, where are we and that kind of stuff. But when you get into the musical numbers, quite often that can fall away. You're really just about, hey, this, what does this music make you feel? What color should we be seeing? What uh, intensity should the chases be happening at? And you do have some license on some of the, the rock musicals to have that lights pointing into the air, making a bigger picture. Um, and you have to be able to think on those lines at the same time. You have to be able to, you know, make sure that the, because people are there to see a, a, the performers on stage, you have to be able to see them. But people also nowadays, especially in this world of um, YouTube videos and um, you're just constantly bombarded by by the media from outside, people want to see something that looks like they saw on YouTube, uh, you know, on, on a music video or something like that. So you have to find that, that balance of... Um, giving them the spectacle, but not then overblowing it. You know, and that's, that's really driven by what type of musical it is. And there's some that are totally forgiving. You can do whatever you want. And then there's other ones where you, you know, okay, maybe just for one song, we're going to push the envelope, but the rest of it is kind of, you know, we're going to get brighter on the song and go back to sort of neutral for the, the next one. Uh, yeah. Just looking at your sort of catalog here, like Little Shop of Horrors would be like that. Like yeah. It's not a big rock music. No, there, there was little bits. Subtle, right? Yeah, the, it, it was a, it was about um, we're still in the the plant shop. We're still on the street, and it's just it's finding ways to make that make it feel like a musical, but then not drag it out into you know <laughs> some kind of rock show. Madonna. Yeah, exactly. No, no Madonna on stage. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, uh, tell me about your dance, uh, your re-entrance into dance too. So you were lighting director for Ballet BC, yeah, uh, for three years. Um, how? Uh, first of all, what was that like? And 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 who? What kind of what work were you doing there? You were were you remounting stuff that already in the catalog? Yeah, or? we we were remounting uh, shows, and um, that was just it was in a in my in my early career. The first job I had after Banff was touring with Ballet BC. So I'd I've always had kind of a connection to the company. I've always known, you know, people there. And so when I left Christie Lights, uh, they said, Hey, we're looking for a lighting director. 
um, can you help us out? And so at that time it was, uh, taking shows on tour. Um, so that fit right in with my, my background at Christie lights. I, I knew how to package a show to take it on the road. Um, I was pretty good at, you know, walking into a theater and hanging a show and focusing it in a day and then being able to do a show the next day. So there was a bunch of that. We were also uh, creating pieces at that time. Um, I wasn't uh, the designer. They would bring other people in. And so, you know, we would, I would work with that designer to figure out what it is they were trying to accomplish. And then from there, take it on tour and document it in a way that could be recreated wherever we went. So there was a, you know, a few times where we would like go up to Banff and spend a couple of weeks creating a show and with a designer. And then I would take it back and do the premiere in, in Vancouver. Um, yeah, got to see a bit of the world doing that. Um, it was good. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and then tell me about this experience you had at Banff working with the U.S. Oh, yeah. Uh, what was his name? Uh, yeah, so the the I was up there uh, working on Orpheus. That was, I think it was the last piece I created while I was a lighting director. And uh, they had hired a lighting designer named Mark Stanley from New York. A uh, really great guy. Um, I can't remember his full CV, but I, I'm, he was the lighting director at City Ballet and he had done stuff at uh, the Royal Danish Ballet in Copenhagen. And um, I think he, he taught, I can't remember which university he taught, but he taught lighting design, really well-known lighting designer in the dance world. And uh, anyways, we had a, we would sit around in the cafeteria over me- meals and talk about our path to where we got to. And uh, I think I was as fascinated by his career as he was by mine because he, you know, my sort of path to become lighting director was not something he uh, could really fathom. And, and as we talked about it, he, he was saying that uh, in New York where he taught, he would actually discourage his students from doing anything uh, technical, mm-hmm. that that was actually a detriment to their career, that they should you know just look at the stage and go, I want uh, more intensity from stage left. They didn't need to know how that was going to be accomplished. Yeah. And, uh, I, <laughs> I couldn't really fathom that. Like I, I've always believed that you need to know how that's going to be accomplished because otherwise how can you ask for it? But, um, his, his belief was that somebody just needed to be worrying about what the stage looked like. And that if your brain, brain got cluttered with all the other logistics of how to do it, you'd lose focus. Um, so I think there's, I, I think there's something there. Um, I, I, that's one of my weak suits is I, I default to what I know I can do and, uh, I need to figure out more how to push the envelope to be conceptual and go, I need this and then let the people around me figure it out. Uh, but I, but I do think it's, there's a lot of importance on knowing how things are accomplished at the end of the day. Otherwise you're asking for things that aren't, uh, aren't achievable or, you know, if there's 10 things you can do, uh, why don't we do the eight we know we can do and not focus on the two that are going to chew up the rest of the time and not do the other eight. So it's, it, I think it's more of a balance and having a foot in both worlds is good. That reminds me of the old kind of debate about whether you speak in syntax with your operator or whether you just ask for, you know, channel five at 50 or something rather than speaking in. Cause, uh, like it used to be, it used to be, it used to matter because of the strand syntax was oh, different yeah. than EVAD <laughs> that was different than expression than the, than the, um, ETC. Uh, but, uh, also, um, you know, I, I was, uh, I came out of the technical, like I was a technician first. Um, and I did, I did design in high school and stuff, but, um, I was also doing corporate work and I was also doing sound and staging and everything else. And, uh, I, I sort of kept it separate. And I think this is sort of the approach that a lot of my friends did where they did corporate work and rock and roll and calls with, you know, Christy and uh, Wes Sun and PRG and whoever else and all the corporate stuff. And then they would design theater um, and they wouldn't do tech work in theater. They would just be designers right. in theater. That was the way you separated it. Um, then I worked at the Shaw, 
but but we always but, but everyone was an electrician first right so you you were a space technician yep. or you were an electrician and then you got your shot to design and then you went on to become a designer uh, and I worked at Shaw with, um, when I was there in 1999, I had an assistant. I was there designing The Millionaire S, which was one of the main stage shows. And um, Melinda Jurgensen, uh, Melinda Jurgensen, yes, was my assistant <laughs> yeah. like so long ago. And uh, she had, I might may, I may have the name wrong. Check the show, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes to make sure I have not screwed up Melinda's name. But anyways, so she was assisting there and she had come out of the MFA pro- program at Alberta. With the same kind of approach, where she, uh, that, uh, that Henry, who, who the designer, oh, the, Mark Stanley, Mark, Mark Stanley was, was talking about, where she did not have a technical background. Yeah. In fact, she had not uh, done technical theater uh, and was more coming at, coming at it from as an artistic practice and not as a technical practice. And it was the first time I thought, oh, you can do that. Like, of course you can. Like, she's got great <laughs> ideas and was, yeah. and, and, uh, and obviously was, she was a great assistant at that time. Now she's gone on to film. Um, she, uh, you could, like, it had never occurred to me that that was, there was a different way of practicing that way. Um, but of course you could. But by the same token, like, I, I agree. Like, you have to, I need to know how things go together. I need to know the te- technical limitations of the equipment. I need to know, um, even when it comes down to like that has a BTR bulb and that's got an oh, EG for sure. and 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 knowing what's in your stock and and the qualities of those well and, 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 and I think I think a lot of that uh, the need is driven by um, the technicians that we work with and um, I I've seen this both my own experiences or seeing other designers working with technicians and. Um, the skill level is so varied and whether it's you're on a focus call and somebody has sent up the most junior person and there's nobody else. So you you have to talk them through how to get rid of a hotspot or, you know, the, the, no, no, it's the opposite shutter. Grab the other side and push that in. Or, um, uh, you know, you, you have a programmer, like you, you might have a really good programmer that you can just say, Hey, I want this, like this, 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 and they'll do it. But then you'll also get a programmer who's there because the normal guy is sick and doesn't know the board. And if you can't speak the syntax, you know, I guess as a designer, if you work on the same boards all the time, you know what the keystroke should sound like. It doesn't take very long until you know that the person at the board is doing the wrong thing. And that, the, the fastest way to speed up that process is to say the keystrokes for them. And that, that doesn't take away from knowing the artistic side of it, but knowing how that happens is making your job achievable. Um, you know, Alan Brody was a master. I've, I've watched him do that a number of times because he would, he would learn a board down to how the effects engine works better than anybody else. And because that he knew that it was important to, to get the effect he wanted, he had to be able to, to tell somebody how to do it. Uh, and if he didn't, then it would just be a complete frustration. Uh, I've gone the other way as I usually bring my own lighting board and do my own programming. Um, but knowing how that happens, that means that you're taking that mystery out of, out of the, 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 the queuing process. You're, it now becomes what it's only limited by what you come up with, not by a person. Um, and, and once again, it's it, knowing what that board can do. Then if you come up with something that you don't know if the board can do it, you can either figure out how it does it, or you can go, no, I need to get a different board because I need this to happen. Uh, and 
I, I really, I might have said this already, um, but I really think it, a lot of this in Canada, it becomes second nature because we have, don't have the money or the time. There's not two or three different options of boards. There's not, you know, extra time in the theater. We have to know how these things work to maximize all the little money and time that we, we were given mm-hmm. and, and, and get close to those shows looking like they look like on Broadway. Yeah, it's very true. I just spoke with uh, Scott Miller um, in the context of this podcast. It'll be a couple episodes ago, but uh, he is a he uh, is a partner in uh, DWD Theater Design and Consulting in town. They do theater consulting and building um, theaters, and uh, he's speaking spaces that don't have a console anymore because many of the the acts coming in and the designers coming in. I mean, you have a very affordable. Uh, software-based system that has a dongle and you can do yeah. all the pre-programming. I've done that. I mean, ETC, the editor at the time, like when the ETC editor <laughs> came out, I mean, it saved so much time. I can just put blocks of stuff in, especially for musicals where you're like, here's my, here's, I know it's going to be this wash. I'll tweak it in the thing, but I know it's going to be a wash in red. Oh, or yeah. Whatever. Like, it's easy. Uh, and so now they're coming in just with a dongle and they just need a place to plug in their DMX and then they run the show off of whatever the software is they're using. Um, so it, that seems to be the way that it's going, especially since rehearsal time is shrinking, time in the theater is shrinking, level set is really just a like it's four hours of backing, like yeah. making sure you we made the right choices. I actually did a, uh, uh, for, a, for a few years there, Alan Brody and I were working with uh, um, Julianne Saroyan. She, she runs Movent here in uh, town. And uh, she does a series called um, uh, Dances for a Small Stage. So sometimes I'd come out, they, they would lay a dance floor that's, I think, 10 feet by 15 feet. And, you know, so we would, he, he and I would take turns and light that piece for her. But we, we came up with this idea that we wanted to teach, um, dancers, uh, choreographers, more about lighting. So over the course of three years, we did a couple week seminar here at the Shadbolt Center where we brought dancers in and we would spend time teaching them about lighting so that we could have a conversation with them to maximize the time in the theater so that they would understand what a side light was, what a backlight was. Here's a swatch book. Here's the colors we're working from, so on and so forth. And after, after doing that for, for three years, uh, I had come up with this idea that I felt like we should show the dancers, the choreographers, what the process was like from our side. So I, I wrote a grant that I didn't get, but I thought I'm just going to go ahead anyways and, and found a way to do it. But what I did was I, I picked uh, five pieces of music and I lit them in WYSIWYG and on my computer. And then I got the shad bolt for a week and I brought the dancers in and said, okay, here's the environment, make a dance. The, the lighting's done. Now you need to come up with choreography within this. And we, we modified the lighting a little bit, but uh, essentially they had to work with what I had already programmed. It was all time coded. I just hit play on the, um, on the soundboard and this half an hour show ran and they had to go. And they lost their minds. Like it was, I had this idea that at the end of it, we would invite a bunch of people to come and see it. And just as a, you know, interesting piece, they didn't want anybody to come. They were so embarrassed about like that the choreography wasn't to the standard they were happy with. And I said, that's how a lighting designer feels all the time is that all these things that you, you discover in the, in the time that you're in the theater and you don't have time to go back and either fix that cue or rehang a light. Like you, you'll do the big ones, but it's kind of like when you get to opening night, ask any lighting designer if they had things they would change or do different. They're going to. There's always something you you would do better or different with 2020 hindsight. Um, and that's I, I think that we really miss that time in the theater. The the more we get, the better the shows get, no matter what uh, discipline we're working in. 
It's also interesting that uh, like we, when you go into the endeavor knowing that, you learn to work in a certain way to make those choices. Uh, and I think as a dancer or as a choreographer, if, you, if that was the way that you had decided to approach a project, you'd make different choices. You're not yeah. going to be working in the same way you'd work in the studio. Uh, you would have a, you'd have a bag of tricks. You'd have a different way of arranging people and and moving and. Uh, and we all have those bag right? of tricks. Like yeah. we, I, I, like everybody's. Oops, everybody's got a. Um, uh, you know, I do my top washes like this or my side washes like this, and and that's really hard. Like to to, to break out of that mold sometimes too, because we we are limited by how much time we have. And you know, uh, you can go see uh, a theater piece, and you can tell, you can look up pretty quickly and go, oh, this is. Even if you didn't look in the program, you would know who the designer was because of the way things are done. And there's nothing wrong with that. That becomes part of your style. That becomes part of your look. But it's also does it's it's uh, it's in response to the limitations we have. There's not a lot of time to go. Hey, I'm going to hang all the side light like this today, or my, my front light is going to be this weird color because you you have no time to then go back and pull it out, or or you know. Um, you can get halfway down the road and go, hey, that worked really well for that actor, that scene, but I need another set. Well, I don't have time to rehang it. So you, you end up going back to what you know. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's, I think we all have to find ways to, to break out of that. Um, even if it's just a little thing, even if it's just on one show, you're going to, you know, try a different gobo instead of going back to the construction breakup. To, I'm going to, I'm going to pick something else out of the catalog and, and go to it. <laughs> There's one of the summers I was the head electrician at, uh, at the Banff center. Um, I, I came over all the other designers, but I was working with Harry Frainer and, uh, they started this, you know, each one was trying to order a different color. They had never tried before. And finally, I think they were on to like a whole new manufacturer, like onto the GAM swatch book. And they finally called down and went, we have about 10,000 different choices in the gel library. Go pick one of those. Like we're, we're not buying anymore. But, but, it, but I mean, Banff, definitely you have that luxury that there was resources and, and time and, and, uh, people there to try those different things out yeah. but uh doesn't happen very often i know a number of times i mean i've made mistakes and uh my um uh shauna miller who's the technical director at ypt yeah. uh used to be electrician um down at blythe where i worked and uh she will tell several stories of me at factory or whatever changing like the rig the color rig because I'll, I'll make a choice and go oh, i'm gonna try this i'm gonna try this try to find this weird blue green that no one makes or com- combining all these colors and you go, Hmm, well that failed. Yeah. <laughs> so now well, I just change all the colors in the rig. It's a pain in the ass, but, but you know that sometimes know. some of the best things come from having the, the, uh, that impetus that this is wrong. Like I made the wrong choice. Now, what am I going to do? And, um, uh, one of the, one of the, uh, best pieces I've ever worked on was with crystal pite. It was uh, dark matters. And, um, We'd worked on it for a number of years, different residencies off and on. And I think it was our final one before it was going to premiere. And at the time, she only danced in the last five or 10 minutes of it. Um, there's a, this ninja character that's throughout that was played by other people, but basically she emerges from the ninja costume at the end. And so we never did that piece, that part of it, until the very last residency before it was going to go. And, you know, we had refined the lighting rig down to what it, what it needed to be. And we all the other parts of it looked great. And then all of a sudden I didn't realize I didn't have anything for this. Like this was a completely different section and the, um, 
the, the music tone had changed and the, and the way she works is that music is very fluted. Like she, I, I still remember doing pieces with her where she would have little pieces of paper and there'd be a, a row of them with uh, t- different bits of choreography. And then there'd be a row of different bits of music that her composer was making and she would be swapping them back and forth. And so it was very difficult because you couldn't get attached to that choreography with this music because in her brain that that was all fluid. So we had just got to this last one and all of a sudden there was this new music and this new choreography and, and she's emerged from the ninja costume. And, uh, I was trying to get like, I was bring something up. No, that's not right to try something else. No, that's not right. And, uh, finally, I, I think if it was a coffee break or a lunch break, uh, everybody kind of leaves the theater and I'm sitting there behind the lighting board, just holding my head, like, what am I going to do? And I just went up and said, fine. Okay. And I got out the lift and I pulled a bunch of gel out of a bunch. Uh, it was a bunch of the backlights and I had had too many. Like I, I had enough to do the stage wash that I had before, but I went, no, I need some kind of gold backlight. So I, I think it was just four par cans. Went up, pulled them out, went through the gel cabinet, found a color, stuffed it in there. We came back. That was what made that, like that moment was all about this, this, like panicking over <laughs> not having the right choice. And, uh, sometimes you do that. You, you, you take like I, the, the plot I had had before was something that had worked and we were, we had used for, uh, two years worth of residencies. And it just took that breaking the mold and trying something different. And it, it answered that question for the last part of that, uh, that piece. I love moments like that. Um, let's talk about more about your dance thing. So Crystal Pint, uh, tell me how you guys started working together because uh, she's now like an international sensation, right? Yeah, she's-, um, she's, moved, she's got a different designer now that she works with, but I did. I had a run there where I did uh, four or five shows with her. Um, I had, uh, when I got my first job after leaving Banff, it was with Bally BC and she was uh, one of the, the junior dancers with the company at the time. And I didn't really, you know, hang out or, get to know the dancers but but at that point we we knew who each other were and I think everybody kind of knew that she was going to be somebody special like she was already doing choreography back then and um you know her trajectory was was set at that point uh so when I had left um uh, Christy Lights uh a mutual friend of ours uh Julianne Saroyan the same lady I did the other project with she was the stage manager for Crystal at the time and uh she had Crystal was looking for a new look to her pieces. So in the, in the, in the dance world, um, choreographers, not only is their, their, their movement recognizable, but there, there really is a style in which their shows are, gets lit and that gets linked to their type of choreography. And, uh, she had gone through the, um, Williams Forsyth, um, world. And I don't remember in her career path where this was, but she had gone through there and he was, his lighting design um, and I think he credits himself as a lighting designer. I don't know if there's somebody else, but his pieces are, are very much lit with, uh, HMI Fresnels. There's like a very bright white look. Sometimes that's the only cue. The lights snap on at the beginning and snap off at the end. And, but that's his signature. And so she was looking for something along those lines. And so Julianne, uh, had said to her, Hey, um, I know Rob, you know, Rob, he works in the world of moving lights. Um, he was the lighting director of Bally BC. He understands dance. Um, maybe you should talk to him about coming in and working with you. And 
I don't remember all the different, you know, th- times we, we would, you know, do a little something together and then go away and then I come in again. But eventually, uh, we worked on, uh, dark matters, the one I was talking about before, and that was over a, a, a two year period. And we would, we would experiment with different things. So we would, she would do a version of it and we would try out a few moving lights on it and, and okay, that works good. And then the next time we'd come back, we would move, either take a few less lights or move one of them. And next time we would try out a strobe light and, you know, different things. Things. And eventually we kind of came up with this signature, a cluster of moving lights over the top of the stage that we could pick the performers out or do a top wash. And it, it, it became the backbone for the sort of the next uh, three or four pieces that we, we worked on together. Um, and then throughout that process as well, um, uh, LED were just starting to come into uh, real use in, in theaters. And I think nowadays we're, we're getting a lot better or the manufacturers are getting better at making them kind of be uniform like a Leco is. Like, you know, you can take a Source 4 Leco and uh, an Altman C360Q is not the same thing, but we all understand what the differences are and you can kind of deal with it. Uh, and LED is getting to be that way now. But but in the beginning, they were making LEDs to light, you know, chandeliers and walls and then people were trying to use them in, in, in theater and dance. And so we had play, play, played around in uh, some of the venues we had gone to with LED, but we could never find the one that was the same look. You'd, you'd get attached to something and then the dimmer curve and the next one you'd come to is wrong. So part of the look we developed for her was buying some uh, color blast and we develop introduced those into her shows either as top light or side light uh, footlights um and she ended up having to buy them just cuz she needed that look we got so attached to the the softness and the the color mixing uh to those not because it's great color mixing not because they're designed specifically for BAMP, but it became this unique look that we had to have them to 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 uh, recreate the pieces so they were the same everywhere and um yeah, so the, but the, those two looks, the, this this HMI, we were using Mac 2000 performances as a as a top light with LED, sort of became the signature look for the the, the four pieces that we worked on together. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I love that. Okay, so in our last little bit here, I just want to cover what you think um, people need to know about technology and how how we train people. I know that I. Uh, Several of the schools are now integrating, and they've got partnerships with the you know the local um, whether it's Christie Lights uh, or other suppliers in town to sort of um, get people trained on whatever the newest technology is because not everyone can afford to turn over the technology every two years. Um, what do you think people should focus on when they're training uh, to be able to enter into a project and maybe? Um, uh, integrate moving lights into their system or uh, become an operator or like how, like how, what do you think people should do? Is it all, should it be theater, um, university-based? Should it be shop-based? Um, and how should they approach it? <laughs> the, 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 um, the biggest challenge I've, I've sort of come across uh, the whole time I've been working with moving lights is that there are too many parameters like it's uh, moving lights are getting more and more complicated. And at the same time, the lighting boards are getting more and more complicated. So it's very easy to lose track of what is the thing that's making the look on stage possible. It's, it's a combination of the lighting board and the moving light and then the programmer doing it as well. And so from a, when I used to train people, uh, on lighting boards, uh, when I was at Christie lights, it, 
we would start with running just dimmers. Mm-hmm. Like, because if you sit down with a lighting board you don't know and a uh, moving light you don't know, you don't know where to begin. And and somebody can tell you, well, it's got rotating gobos, but if you don't know how to call them up or you don't know how to do it, it's uh, where do you start? And th- this actually happened to me in my early career. I uh, because I became known as the moving light guy. They were doing the telethon at the Queen Elizabeth Theater, and I was actually an IATSE member at that time. And and they needed somebody to do the the midnight to eight a.m. shift, and so they called me in to do it. And th- I they had a. Um, a compulate. And I'd never sat behind a compulate before in my life, but somebody went, Oh, it'll all be programmed. No worries. You can, you can do it. Well, so I get there and it, it it's completely foreign. Like I, I didn't, didn't know what I was doing. And, and it was, it was cyber lights. I knew how they ran, but I could not figure, I could, I could figure out how to make them rotate, but only in the indexing mode. So I, I had to keep spinning the wheel around if I wanted to rotate in gobo look on stage because I couldn't figure out how to swap them over. So I, I think it's, uh, if, if somebody's trying to approach moving lights or a console, it's really important to start with what you know. So starting with, um, if you're starting with a moving light and you don't want to learn the console, it's finding somebody who can walk you through it and go through every little thing and and open up the manual and go, okay, so the color wheel, what are all the parameters going to do? And, and I don't know how many people do that anymore. Like they, they'll, they'll, they'll be told, okay, this fixture has, um, a color wheel. Okay, great. And you know, I can select all these 12 colors. Great. Generally, there's there's another half of that control channel where the color will bounce back and forth, or the color will do a, the the wheel will turn, or um, especially now that we've got a lot of fixtures that are LED and there's weird stuff that can happen. They might have a color uh, channel that you can pick colors, but then you get further down and they've got random color and they've got so on and so forth. And so it's important to then read the manual and know those things and how they work, but then you need somebody to show you how to do it. So if you really know how the console works, if, if, if you've, you know, figured out how to run uh, an ion on a grand MA or whatever, plug the fixture in and then go through and go, okay, here's the random color mode of this fixture. How do I refine it? How, how can I speed it up, slow it down? How do I go from, uh, being in random color mode to the, the static blue that I want in the next queue? that's, those are all the things I think a lot of people miss. They, they can, and even if I've seen uh, moving light demos being given by manufacturers, they'll run you through, okay, here's, here's the rotating gobos. Here's the shapers. Here's the this, here's the that. And then you go, okay, but I want to go from this look to something really plain without it going out. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it's like this whiz pan of ugliness that happens. And, and you have to be aware of that. Uh, it doesn't mean it's a bad fixture. It just means that you as the designer, have to know how to, how to deal with that. So it's spending, the more time you spend with one type of moving light, the better. Um, as you get, so what I've, I've done is I've concentrated on, uh, knowing one line of fixtures very well. I had my line of fixtures chosen by Christie lights, you know, and I, and I, I will admit, I go to trade shows, I go to other theaters and I'll see, uh, very lights hung or I'll see some new, um, you know, it doesn't matter. There's lots of fixtures out there that are spectacular and have amazing functions, but I will never see them. And, uh, there's no use spending any time. It's, it's a, you know, cutting, cutting to the chase too soon, maybe, but I'm not going to get a chance to rent those. I can, I can fall in love with, a some specific fixture from Italy, but I can't get it in Vancouver. So I need to know how does the, the Martin line of fixtures work intimately to achieve what I need it to you're going to then come to opportunities where once you know that line of fixtures and you're, you're working on a show and somebody's going to go, we want to do this effect. You're going to go, nothing in this line 
works or we need to buy gobos to make this work. I need to buy gobos, but it's because you're completely intimate with what all of those uh, choices are. And so I, I guess if I had any advice for, for, um, new people coming up or people doing those kind of training things is limiting your choices early on, like get good at what you can afford. So don't, don't go, if you're, if you're doing your first, um, first show with a moving light, don't go get the most expensive one, go get something simple, figure out how that works, discover what its limitations are. And then you'll know why you want to move up to the, to the next light. Cause the next light means you're going to spend more money and therefore you're going to have less moving lights. So in your early days, you might be able to afford, you know, eight small, ones, but the, uh, the dimming curve's terrible on them. Okay. I want a fixture with a better dimming curve. Now you can only have four. Is that okay? And, and I, I go back and forth all the time. I'll, um, I'll do shows with Mac one ones, which is basically just a pin spot that color mixes. Um, but they're super fast. They're super bright and they're super cheap. So I could have 24 of them on a show and do like for a musical, you can have big, impressive, uh, array of, uh, lights up there, uh, that can do all these great chases. They're never going to zoom, but the choice was made that I could I could have had six fixtures that would do a stage wash, or I can have twenty four beams of light. That just that those choices are made by knowing what all the fixtures do. And ultimately, it comes down to what are the what are the problems? And this is like the fundamental thing on the show and in, in theater design is what are the problems that you're trying to solve with exactly. this gear? Do you need moving lights? Can you do the whole thing static and or with uh, with conventionals like? Like we did it forever with just conventionals and not moving lights. Oh, for sure. Like what does the moving light add? And are you willing to spend your budget on that? Like that's, that's the age old question. Not just because it's fun and interesting and new and cutting edge and you want some movement. Well, and, and, and there's, and there's still going back to the old technology. Like, um, I love scrollers that they, they have their limitations. They don't color mix, you know, they're, they can be noisy, but understanding that means that now I can maximize my, my space on my pipe. That's, it all comes down to what are your limitations? If you're running out of pipe space, well, instead of hanging a three color backwash, hang one scroller backwash. Now it can only be that color. Like you, you can't do the nice fade from one to the other, but it, it's understanding what those are. And I, and I, and I think, um, I think that's something really important that, uh, that teaching uh, new people coming up, it's not, it's not just designers, it's even technicians. It's understanding the limits and working within them. So whether it's power, like people not understanding power and how many lights can go on a hundred amp drop and what, and balancing it because it can all be on one leg, uh, rigging, you know, you can't, you can't just infinitely hang stuff up in the air. The more you understand those parameters, the better you're going to be to work within them. And then, as you said, it's solving the the puzzle of what are we trying to, to accomplish? And that puzzle changes every show with every director, with every, uh, situation. And, and so, but knowing how, knowing why you make those choices is what's important. Well, that's excellent. I think we'll just leave it there. Fantastic. Thank you so much. No, no worries. Okay. That was production designer Robert Sondergaard speaking to me from his home in Port Cody, B.C. in December of 2018. Next time, an interview with designer Robert Gardner. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good, with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. We'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at thetitleblockca and on facebook.com slash thetitleblockpodcast. You can send comments and requests by email to thetitleblock at gmail.com. Now, don't forget that if you like the show, please support us on patreon.com. 
Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you figure out what the hell a chiclet controller is, and be glad that you never had to use one. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on the Title Block. <laughs>